0: This is episode 406 with Simon Hill. The Melissa
1: Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Me Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy. Healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week I'll be getting up close and personal with leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. Number one, New York Times best-selling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, "Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis." And multiple New York Times best-selling author Gabby Bernstein said, "Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual." I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to Comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today.
0: Welcome back to the show. This is your guest host for today's episode. My name is Nick Broadhurst. And for those of you who don't know me, I am Melissa Ambrosini's husband, and she's currently on maternity leave taking care of our beautiful little daughter, Bambi. So today I have a very special episode because Simon Hill is one of my very, very closest friends and someone I respect so much for his work in improving people's lives when it comes to nutrition and also, to be honest, clearing up so much confusion and presenting really unbiased information that's always science-based. Simon and I were recently chatting about different podcast episodes we'd love to do and the one that came up for us was the confusion between low carbohydrate and high carbohydrate for weight loss and I think there is a huge amount of confusion around this topic so we decided to dive into that today and clear up some of that confusion. So in today's episode we chat about what is the best diet for weight loss We talk about, obviously, low-carb versus high-carb, which one is superior. Why are ultra-processed foods not good for our weight or our health? We talk about meal timing and nutrient timing, some really interesting stuff around that. Different body types, what happens if your body is totally different to someone else's who's doing low-carb or high-carb and they're getting great results and you're not? So we talk about that and how to tweak things to suit your own unique constitution. We also discuss how we can speed up our weight loss, we talk about fruit and grains and starchy carbs and dive into some of the fear around those types of foods, how much water should we be drinking to maximize weight loss and just have good health in general, what types of exercise are best for weight loss, how often we should eat to lose weight, are all calories created equal, how important is sleep for weight loss, honestly we just go into so much detail. This. Interview is actually one of the longest we've ever done on this show, and for good reason, because it's a big topic and a very important one. And I mentioned in the podcast that if you look around, unfortunately, a very, very large portion of the population is overweight, so there is clearly some confusion around this topic. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Simon Hill's work, definitely go and check out episode 396, which is called How to Become Plant-Proof and Transform Your Health. It's such a goodie. Simon Hill is the founder of the hugely popular Plant Proof Podcast and honestly, guys, it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite, after the Melissa Ramassini show and he also has a blog of the same name. Simon is a nutritionist and a qualified physiotherapist. On top of his formal education, Simon spends hours and hours deciphering scientific studies so he can break down how to fuel your body to promote longevity And reduce the chance of developing disease while simultaneously achieving whatever health and fitness goals you may have. He is the plant-based food contributor to Chris Hemsworth's fitness app called Center. And in 2019, Simon opened a plant-based restaurant called Eden, one of my favorites, in his Sydney neighborhood of Bondi. Of course, he's also the author of The Proof is in the Plants, which came out in April. Simon, second time lucky I've hit record this time. We were having a good chat then and we weren't recording it, but let's go again. Said Simon, tell us, what did you have for breakfast this morning?
2: Breakfast. I was saying I am a creature of habit and I had the same thing this morning that I had with you and Melissa Uh, last time I was on the show. And that is how I start most of my days oatmeal, soaked oats, some. Uh, fresh berries on top of there, and walnuts and chia, so lots of omega three rich foods. Uh, some plant based yogurt on top, and uh, a simple but I find highly effective meal for me, and and something that pretty much starts every single day.
0: Mm, it's pretty much exactly what I used to have, and I've mixed things up a bit lately. This morning I tried doing a smoothie bowl, and I had a lot of things in there. It was mainly it was banana wild blueberries. I had some pineapple in there and lots of different green powders, spirulina, chlorella, maca, different things like that. And I found that by 11 o'clock, I was still feeling not full, but I didn't feel hungry, right? If I took those same elements in a smoothie bowl and I broke it down and chewed each of those things separately, I tend to get hungrier a lot faster, which tells me that I'm digesting it better when I chew them individually, right? It's almost like when you put everything into a smoothie, I wonder whether it's too much data for the body. And if you chew things individually, it's like, okay, I'm chewing pineapple and your body's preparing enzymes for that. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's absolutely correct. For certain people, that is a strategy that I often recommend for, for them to lean into, particularly if they're experiencing uh, some IBS sort of symptoms and bloating and discomfort with eating. And before even looking at what they're eating, it's how quick are you eating? Are you chewing your food? Are you just blending everything? And you're right. If you blend something, you in effect are are skipping a step and digestion starts in our mouth. As we're chewing food, these enzymes are released that are very important for helping us break down food and ultimately get it into nutrients that we can absorb and then assimilate and utilize in our body. So, you know, if you're Body is telling you that that is working better for you. I'm all for that. I think that, you know, one of the most important things that all of us can do is once we understand what a a healthy dietary pattern looks like, play around with things like that and and get to know your body and personalize things where
0: it sort of makes sense for you. I agree. And, um, you know, for me, I have had to play around a lot with bits and pieces to find out what my body actually likes. And I think that's key to it, right, is, is being okay with experimenting and finding things that really don't work and going, okay, cool. You know, that's fine. I'm good with that. And it just, I don't know, it's almost like I think people take food very seriously, you know, and <laughs> coming from me, that's like the pot calling the kettle. It's easy to get tied up in having the perfect diet, the perfect this, the perfect that, and also looking for supplementation, superfoods, these sorts of things. But you mentioned chewing, right? I think chewing is the most, I don't know, one of the most important things that is not spoken about enough because I know that when I sit down and eat a salad, it takes me twice as long as Melissa to eat a salad, right? Because I literally chew that thing into absolute liquid every single mouthful. And I was having some body work recently with this amazing uh, local guy And he said he counts every time he chews something. Even if it's a banana, he chews 70 times. So I was like, okay, I'm going to count how many times I chew this salad. And it actually was like 90 chews per mouthful, naturally doing that. So we can always look for the, the latest diet, the latest supplement, the latest this, the latest that. But sometimes it's just the basics, right? Chew your food, get good sleep, drink good water. You know, easy to chewing open, man.
2: Easy. To, I mean, water is a yeah. That's right. I often say. I think water is the most underrated superfood out there. And we can, you know, we all do it. I do it myself. I see the fancy headline and the latest supplement and get attracted to it and and what it's promising, while overlooking the fact that I'm not properly hydrating every day. So you're right. It, it's really important to get the perspective and come back to those basics and, and set those up as consistently as possible. And that's where we're going to get the best results.
0: Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Simon, you can go and check out episode 396. So that was only, I think, 10 episodes ago that you're on the show because you launched your book, The Proof Isn't the Plan. So First of all, congratulations on the launch. How does it feel to finally put author in your bio?
2: <laughs> well it makes it official. Does it feel weird? Yeah, it does. It does. It definitely does feel a little weird. You know, while I was writing the book the entire time, I felt like a writer, so you know, nothing has really changed other than now other people referring to me as an author. So, you know, slightly weird, but I'm starting to feel a bit more comfortable with it. And it's just been really pleasing to see the three plus years of work now landing in people's hands and and people messaging me saying that they're finding it really interesting and deriving great value from it and improving their health. And, you know, it makes all of the, the long days and weekends that went into creating it. And you would know from creating everything that you do, including the music, there is a, a lot of hard work that, that goes into these things. And you know, it's nice now to, to get that feedback and it, it feels totally worth it.
0: Mm, it's an amazing book. You've done such a good job. And I'm going to be honest and say I haven't finished it yet because we didn't receive it until I think a couple of weeks ago. And with a newborn, Reading time is greatly cut down because you get into bed and just kind of (laughs) two pages and you're out. So, but I definitely will finish it soon. But having gone through sort of skimming the entire book as well, I can see that what you've put together pretty much answers every single question you could have about being plant based. And let's talk about that because you and I are both plant based, and my own personal story is. You know, I've I've come from every single diet slash fad you can think of. I've tried everything, right? That's my nature. I like to experiment. And by far, the single biggest shift I've ever had in my health, in my fitness and my strength was going plant-based. And when I say plant-based, I could almost say vegan, but I do have honey, for example, or well, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, and I do have a car that has leather seats, but I bought that before I was plant-based. So I can't fully say I'm vegan,
2: but... I'm not sure anyone can really fully say they're vegan. It's pretty tough.
0: I mean, where did you draw the line? There's bacteria on yeah. every plant. And so when I did finally go plant-based, I and it's funny actually, the funny story is because I remember when we met you and we were more paleo at the time, this is many years ago, and I had this weird sort of, I don't know, almost like a, an arrogance towards veganism <laughs> Almost like anyone who was plant based or vegan is going to have I don't know hormonal problems or waste away, can't build muscle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's a shame I had that attitude, and I don't know why. I think it's because when you are following any particular sort of regime, you you buy into everything else that comes with it. You know what I found since then is that everything I thought was pretty much untrue, and the proof for me was in. My own performance when I went plant based my workouts i was literally i was shocked at my recovery, not just during the workouts like in between sets but post workout my muscle soreness is like i have to say it's pretty much non-existent unless i don 't train for a long time and I come back to it anyone's going to hurt when you do that but i've been literally shocked and you 'll know me simon i'm a big experimenter i play around with all sorts of things. And when we last did the podcast, I was on day 27 of a juice fast. (laughs) And
2: Whenever there's something I want to understand more about that's crazy, I I think about you and I think about giving (laughs) you a call because I'm sure that you've
0: tried it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was about 10 kilos lighter at the time and you and Melissa were having your oatmeal breakfast and I was drinking a juice. But what's amazing about being plant-based, I found that I can I can do these sorts of things and it play around very safely with what I want to do with my body and it's all fine, right? But that sort of ties into the topic of today, which is weight, okay? Because I lost 10 kilos doing a 30-day juice fast, which is (laughs) not surprising, right? But if you look around at not just Western countries, but almost every country around the world, there must be confusion, surely, about weight loss. Because you'd have to say that Unfortunately, the majority of people are actually statistically overweight, which then leads to all of these other problems in society with the number one killer being heart disease. Now, where is this confusion coming from? Because it's obvious when you look around that people may not understand much about the whole weight loss thing. There must be a lot of confusion around this.
2: It's... Really, really interesting, isn't it? Like I've thought long and hard about this. And I think if you sat most people down and said, it's healthy to eat more fruits and vegetables. You know, in in Australia today, 95% of us are not eating enough fruit and vegetables. And at the same time, nearly half of our daily calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. I think most people would recognize that fruits and vegetables are healthier than ultra-processed foods. But what's happened is we have this food environment that we're all, all in and we're constantly faced with these highly palatable, irresistible foods that food scientists have worked very, very hard and they've done a great job creating in a way, in a, a formulation that makes them very hard to put down. And when you start eating those foods and they start entering your diet and your total caloric intake every day, and in an appreciable way, they're crowding out natural, whole foods. And it's very hard for nature to compete with them. You know, that's, that's exactly what the food scientists are trying to do. They, they are trying to get you to overconsume those foods. And, and unfortunately, when you look at advertising we're faced with, the advertising kids are faced with, um, the marketing that happens in schools with elite sports in Australia. We have built this environment where the average Australian who doesn't have the nutritional literacy that you and I have, and they're not necessarily out there listening to all the podcasts and reading all of the books, they are making the quick, convenient choice, which happens to be a very unhealthy choice and leads to an overconsumption of calories. And so, if I was to sort of point my finger at one part of our food system that is causing the most damage, that's it. That's even before we get to the whole animal versus plant discussion. it's part step one is to move back to eating real food and I think Nick, that's where everyone agrees. you know you mentioned the the paleo sort of movement or, or section of the sort of diet conversation you know that. Group of people, they would agree with the plant-based people, the high carb and the low carb people would all agree that the biggest thing that needs to be addressed is the overconsumption of this ultra-processed food. And there's an interesting phrase that gets thrown around on social media, and I'm sure you've heard of this before, where we hear that you know a calorie is a calorie. Have you heard that mm, before? Totally, yeah. And look, we, you know, we need to acknowledge that our weight is dictated by energy balance. So that is a calculation that looks at how much energy is is our body utilizing, burning versus how much energy are you bringing into it. And so when you did your juice cleanse, your body was using a lot more energy every day just being alive and doing all of the things that it does compared to the amount of energy that you were consuming and you lost a significant amount of weight during that period. Now while a, a calorie being a unit of energy is a calorie, there's a problem when we just oversimplify it to that level. And what do I mean by that? Well, the food that those calories are coming in are not the same, and they differentially affect how full or how hungry we feel after we consume them. So, for example, let's say broccoli. You can consume three and a half cups of broccoli, and that's about 100 calories. Now, also, for around 100 calories, a little bit more, that's one tablespoon of olive oil or about 10 Maltesers, you know, the little chocolate uh, Maltesers, those little balls. So just think about that. Three and a half cups of broccoli, one tablespoon of olive oil or 10 Maltesers. Each of those, essentially an equivalent amount of energy calories. But which one of those do you think would be the hardest to overconsume?
0: Mm.
2: Well, it's going to be the broccoli. Of course, yeah. You you have to eat three and a half cups of this broccoli. That's a lot of food volume. It's full of fiber. You have to chew it going back to what you mentioned earlier. It's going to take you a lot longer to eat that broccoli than it is to take that tablespoon of olive oil and quickly swallow it. So in other words, while all the calories are equal from an energy perspective, the foods that are providing those calories are not equal when it comes to our health or weight loss. Some will promote us to overeat. And some will help us feel fuller on less calories. So my main point that I want to make here is where our diet is mostly going wrong is we're not eating real food. And nearly half of our calories every day are coming from these packaged foods, biscuits, cakes, cookies, sugar-sweetened drinks, white flour, baked goods. These are, are foods where we've added sugar, salt, and oil. And at the same time, we've stripped out water fiber, vitamins, and minerals, and they're causing us to overeat. And there's a very interesting study, if you want, I can elaborate on this, a study that came out in 2019 that you might find interesting. Please. So there's a a researcher, Kevin Hall, and he runs these studies, very, very eloquent studies, where he convinces people, Nick, to come in and stay for a month in a hospital setting so he and his team can feed them and make sure that they're only eating what they give them. Because you can imagine if you try and run a clinical trial and people are going home, how good is the adherence to to what you're telling them to do? And so you lose a bit of the sort of reliability in terms of the results. And he wanted to look at what happens when you eat ultra-processed foods versus unprocessed. And interestingly, the way they designed this study, they actually manipulated the foods in favor of the ultra processed foods, if anything. And by that, what do I mean? So usually ultra processed foods are much lower in fiber and protein than whole foods. But in this study, what they did was they matched the meals. So the calories, the sugar, the fat, the fiber, the protein was all the same in the ultra processed and the unprocessed foods. They were the same. And they had people come in and eat the ultra processed diet for two weeks and then the unprocessed diet for two weeks. And some people did it in the opposite order. So it was a crossover study. So every person had a go at eating both of those diets, and they did each diet for two weeks. Now, what they found was remarkable because, remember, fiber and protein are matched in these meals. They were telling people, Nick, just eat until you're full and supplying an excess of calories throughout the day so that people could just keep consuming. What they found was on the ultra-processed diet, people ate around 500 calories more per day. That's 3,500 calories extra a week. And over the two-week period, people eating the ultra-processed foods tended to gain about a kilogram of fat, and when they were eating the unprocessed diets, they tended to lose a kilogram of fat. And we're looking at just you know, 14-day period on each of these diets here. Imagine this playing out over months and months and years. And that's what happens in real life. Our weight gain typically, Nick, is not something that happens to us in one month. It's usually something that creeps on us. Mm. And then, you know, a decade goes past and all of a sudden people think, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot heavier than I was 10 years ago. And, and each year a little bit has added on. And, and then the ironic thing is it creeps up on us slowly, but we want to get rid of it very fast. Mm. And we can talk about strategies that are helpful when it comes to losing the weight in, the, in a little bit. But to sort of just recap what I was talking to there, I, I'm, I'm talking to these ultra-processed foods that are making up nearly half the calories in our diet. They are engineered to be hyperpalatable. And we have to remember that from a biology point of view, we are wired to crave energy-dense foods. It helped Homo erectus you know, many, many years ago, it was a survival tactic. When you came across foods that were energy dense, you wanted to eat as much as possible because food was scarce. And for Homo Erectus, there may not have been food around the corner, but today we live in an environment where there is food abundance and there are energy dense foods everywhere we look. We can order them and really don't even have to get off the couch, which means that it's essentially very easy for companies, transnational companies that are making these products to exploit our biology. And so I think it's important for us all just to be aware of this. Why? Because maybe we can't control the environment, the food, the the broader food environment, but what we can control is the environment in our four walls, in our house. And if we're aware of all of this, we can then make sure that what we're bringing into our home is foods that are nourishing and foods that are not going to lead to overconsumption, not going to lead to weight gain. And if weight loss is your goal, are going to be the foods that you want to lean on more to promote weight loss.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, this is not a podcast episode about plant based as such. What we wanted to focus on was the, Very confusing topic of high carb versus low carb. And of course, you and I definitely agree that plant centric, meaning that the majority of your calories coming from plants is an extremely good thing. And when we say plants, I'm talking about whole food plants. If you come into our house, you will see very, very little things in packets. There's just almost nothing. The few things we have in packets might be a backup tin of coconut cream, maybe some backup tins of some legumes of some sort. It's really, really rare. And maybe some sauces like coconut aminos, vinegar, the rest of it. When we go to the markets on Sunday, and at the moment I'm going on my own because Melissa's here with little Bambi, I have to do three or four trips to the car because I literally, I can't carry it all. And that only gets us to about Thursday. But the thing is, it's not expensive. right? These are not expensive things that I'm buying. It's just that when you're eating whole food plants, you actually are consuming a lot more volume, right? And a lot of that volume for me comes from carbohydrate-rich foods, sweet potatoes, potatoes, lots of fruits. So let's dive into carbs because I'm sure many people listening to this, especially women, could have a fear of carbohydrates. It's been drilled into us that carbs make you fat, right? Carbs for me, they are my absolute savior. When I went for about two years, I was in a keto phase, keto diet. And I'm not joking, it almost, almost killed me. I was severely depressed for 12 months. My body type, which is more of an ectomorph body type, which in the Ayurvedic world would be a vata, um, vata pitta is my body type. It needs and loves carbohydrates for fuel. And if you look at us in terms of how we've evolved carbohydrates have always been the preferred fuel for our brains, especially. And yes, we can burn fat for fuel, but it is a backup mechanism, right? So I want to talk to you about carbs because we've spoken on this show many times before about fruit fear, carb fear, these sorts of things. So do carbs make you fat? Let's talk about that
2: the million dollar question. Okay, so I think first let's understand what carbs carbohydrate is. That's an umbrella term that that really means everything from a jelly bean to a black bean. And so I think what's happened is we've we've demoni- demonized carbohydrates as a collective overlooking the fact that there are very very many different forms of carbohydrates some have deleterious effect on our health and promote weight gain as the added sugars in those ultra processed foods that i just mentioned do but then some carbohydrates in the carbohydrates in an unrefined form that are found in whole plant foods in fruits and in vegetables and in whole grains and legumes are consistently associated with better health and healthy body weight etc and i think The fear of carbohydrates is a great study that came out 2020. Again, this is Kevin Hall. and, And the reason I refer to Kevin Hall a bit is because he does do these very, very controlled trials in the metabolic ward, which is, as I said, the gold standard for controlling what people are eating. And there's this idea out there that carbs make us fat. And in fact, there is actually a theory, a model, the carbohydrate insulin model you may have heard of. It's quite popular in the keto crowd. Essentially, in lay terms, how this model is described is that you ingest carbohydrates and remember, this is a theory, I'm just explaining it. You ingest carbohydrates, the body releases insulin because insulin is required to help you get the energy from the carbohydrates into your cell or or the, the carbohydrates into your cell to produce energy. And at the same time, insulin in this model is considered a fat storage hormone. So the idea is that you've ingested carbohydrates, it leads to fat storage, and also that insulin drives hunger and makes you more hungry. So that's the theory. Kevin Hall put this to the test. He thought, well, there's a lot of people talking about this. Why don't I I do a really eloquent study and see if this is true? And again, he did a, a study where people did one diet for two weeks and the next diet for two weeks. And one of those diets was a low-carbohydrate, ketogenic, animal-based diet. The other diet was a low-fat, high-carbohydrate, completely plant-based diet. So he chose really good diets to put head-to-head, and he also focused on diet quality to make sure that these people weren't doing heavily refined foods. It was as much as practically possible, it was based on whole foods. And so what happened? Well, You would expect, based on that model that I just explained, the carbohydrate insulin model, if carbohydrates were really the evil food that makes us gain fat, you would expect that the plant based group in this study would gain more body fat, right? Because they're eating a high carbohydrate diet. So they're going to have higher insulin levels, which according to that model means more fat storage. So what happened? Well, in fact, the opposite occurred. So in this tightly, tightly controlled study, those following the plant-based, plant-exclusive diet that was very high in carbohydrates, they ate on average around 680 calories less per day. Now, they surveyed them and looked at satiety and there was no difference in satiety between the groups. So, these people were just as full on nearly 700 calories less per day. Now, What else was seen? Those adopting the plant-based diet lost more body fat than the low-carb ketogenic group, although they were actually quite similar. The interesting part of the study was not so much the differences in body fat loss, but it was that this idea that carbohydrates make you fat was shown to be categorically incorrect. And in fact, if anything, they observed the opposite. Now, that's a tightly controlled study in a metabolic ward there have been multiple studies outside, randomized controlled trials outside of a metabolic ward. And there's a professor from Stanford who's done two very famous studies, one called the A to Z study and one called Diet Fits. And these are two of the, the sort of uh, more commonly cited studies out there that are looking at low-carb versus high-carb diets and what happens t- in terms of weight loss. Both of these studies, Nick, are 12-month trials. And diet fits in particular, which was the more recent one, Christopher Gardner, the the lead researcher, he spent a lot of time making sure that all of the subjects were adopting the very best low carb diet and the very best high carb diet from a quality point of view. He engaged dieticians into this to be involved in this study and to really make sure that this was based on real food. Lots of fruits and vegetables and and minimizing ultra-processed foods as as far as practically possible. And again, at the end of the 12 months, there's no difference between the two groups. The macronutrient ratio did not predict who would do better. Here's the really interesting thing, Nick, and I think you'll find this interesting because you, you spoke earlier about your body type and the fact that there may be some differences between people. This is the interesting finding. In Christopher Gardner's first study, A to Z, he noticed that in although there was no difference between the Atkins diet in that study and the Ornish diet, which were the lowest carb versus the highest carb, what he noticed was that within each group, some people did really poorly and some people did really well. There was wide variation in all of the different macronutrient split groups. And then the same thing in diet fits, in fact. But in diet fits, he knew, he'd already predicted there wouldn't be a difference between low fat and high carb because this study was after A to Z. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to see, well, okay, I'm predicting that those in low carb will overall as a group, they will do exactly the same as those in high carb, but I'm predicting there'll be wide variation in both groups. And he wanted to sort of identify, is there a way of predicting who would do better on low-carb and who might do better on high-carb? And he thought, well, maybe it comes down to genetics. And so they looked at three different genes that were, are associated with obesity. And then he also thought maybe it comes down to insulin resistance. And so he looked at that as well. And interestingly, none of that helped predict who in each group did well on low-carb and, and who did poorly and, and exactly the same on the other diet. And so we're left in this current position right now where what we understand is that there is no definitive answer in terms of what's better, low-carb or high-carb. The results in these studies show that the groups overall on average do the same. What we understand is that people lose weight when they move to real foods and get away from ultra-processed foods. What remains unanswered and what science is going to explore in future years is how do we predict once we shift people to eating real foods and getting away from ultra processed foods, how can we predict who's going to do better on low carb and who's going to do better on high carb? And so that's the latest evidence people are hearing right now, like where science is up to as of this moment.
0: Mm interesting because when you talk about animal-based keto and the plant-based high carb, you know, I've, I've done those and I know how I felt on both of those. And I'm currently still, you know, a very high carb plant-based diet. In my keto phase, I found myself consuming a lot of calories, very easy to get a lot of calories when you're having lots of fats, whether it's olive oil or ghee or whatever it is. But I found that I became skinny fat on keto. Right. And it's interesting because I I started this just before I filmed my music video for Little Lover. I was in really good shape following a largely sort of paleo diet that that had plenty of carbs in it, sweet potato, that sort of stuff. And I switched to keto. And a week before the music video, because I knew I had to film this music video with my shirt off, I was thinking, I'm putting on body fat. What is going on here? And luckily, I wasn't keto for too long before that Mm -hmm. music video because I still remained in pretty good shape for it. But I noticed as time went on, I was never fat as such, but I definitely got really soft, really soft. Muscle mass went down. I mean, I went down at my lowest point. I was about 59 kilos. And we're talking still heaps of calories, right? I was eating heaps of calories. But for my body type, that just didn't do well. So shifting into body types now, just to give people a bit of an understanding of the different types I mentioned ectomorph, mesomorph, and endomorph before, which correlate in the Ayurvedic world, which many listeners will be familiar with, with Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. And if you want to know the the correct pronunciation for Kapha, it's actually Gappa. I just learned that. So I'm going to call it Gappa today. So Vata is ectomorph, Pitta is mesomorph, and Gappa is endomorph. And for me, I'm a Vata Pitta. So I have this body type, which is reasonably tall, lean, I find it pretty hard to put on significant weight. I have to eat a lot of food and train very hard to put on significant muscle. That said, what's been interesting since this juice fast, I was very underweight, but I have put on about 11 kilos in the last 10 weeks, which is a lot. It's like really rapid weight gain. And it's not very little body fat has come with that. It's mostly muscle. And that's being filled by a very high carbohydrate diet, right? So, and I'm lucky because I love eating carbohydrates. Um, so that's my body type. That's the Vata or the Ecto. Then you've got the Meso or the pizza. If you think of the classic sort of crossfitter who is medium height, sort of medium build, well-proportioned, can just kind of like go hard to failure all the time, doesn't seem to get exhausted. That's more of a sort of Mesomorph body type and they put on muscle very easily, can kind of eat whatever they want. And then the Endomorph is someone who's a little bit heavier in their body set find it very easy to put on weight if they look at a sweet potato they can they can gain weight and if to give you a comparison melissa is a pizza guppa which means that she can still very much eat carbohydrates but if she has too much she can put on weight but it's not just the carbohydrates it comes down to calories for her if she's having a lot of calories she knows where it's going to go on her body right she knows where the weight's going to go on her body so it does come down to body types yeah Because some people do really well off a salad and some people can't even survive two hours off a salad. So things, you know, it depends on your body type. Can you talk to us about that? And what are your recommendations for weight loss for those different categories of body types?
2: Okay, so, wow, there's a lot to unpack there, but some very, very good insights. And this is where I like Western and Eastern medicine overlapping and there's insights and, and learnings from both. And to kick this off, I think from a weight loss perspective, what do, because I don't, I want people to actually have some information they can grab a hold of here and not think that there's just a lot unanswered. The first thing I want people to understand is that this idea online you see low carb fighting versus high carb, and each side saying that one's definitely best for weight loss. Let's hopefully I've summarized that that's not the case. And what we do know is that we want to remove or minimize ultra processed foods as much as possible. We want to be definitely eating a high fiber diet. And that means that we are going to be having an abundance of whole plants in the diet because fiber is is only coming from plants.
0: And when we say plants, Simon, to be clear, we're talking vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, seaweeds, legumes. What am I missing there?
2: Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains.
0: Whole grains, yeah.
2: Yeah. And just quickly, without going into too much detail there, each of those are providing different types of fiber. I mentioned fiber being important. Fiber is not just one thing. We think of it as singular, but they're in terms of if they're soluble and insoluble. But in terms of our soluble fiber, there are different types. And each plant is providing a different type of prebiotic fiber which are then feeding different bacteria in our gut. And when it comes to weight loss, when we feed these bacteria, they actually produce hormones that suppress our appetite. And so this is one of the key benefits of eating a fiber-rich diet. Two, two of these hormones uh, in particular, one is called PYY and one called GLP-1. That's a little bit of science there, but probably you don't actually need to know that. All you need to know is that with a good diversity of those foods that we just spoke of, You're going to be keeping all of these different species of bacteria in your gut, very happy and healthy, and they will proliferate. They will produce these hormones, these compounds that will then reward you. You'll feel fuller on less calories, and that's what we want. So that's minimizing ultra-processed foods, lots of fiber-rich foods, and the next is protein. Protein has a high thermic effect, meaning that we actually require, utilize a lot of energy to break down and use it which makes it good from a weight loss perspective, but it's also very filling. And this is where the animal versus plant protein conversation kind of comes up. The advantage with plant protein, I believe, is there's a few. One is that as you're getting plant protein, a lot of it's going to come from legumes. What's coming with that protein? What's coming packed next to it? Fiber, antioxidants, there's some water. So there's a lot of these other nutrients that are also going to fill you up. Help keep you fuller, but most importantly, is that yes, we want a good amount of protein in our diet to help keep us full and to promote weight loss if that's our goal. But we have so much science showing that there are beyond weight, there are huge benefits for our health in terms of lowering our risk of chronic disease and living longer by swapping some calories from animal protein in our diet for more plant protein. So this goes beyond just weight loss. So to recap that, that's what we definitely know, Nick, is that we want a diet that's low in ultra-processed foods, it's rich in fiber, and it is providing a good amount of protein. Ideally, you're getting a lot of that from plant protein and de-emphasizing some of this animal protein so that we're looking after our overall health. Now, the question that you asked about different body types. Well, what I've just described there doesn't speak to macronutrient ratio. You can do that, that theme of high fiber plant predominant, you can do it low carb, you can do it moderate carb, you can do it high carb. You can play around. For some people, they'll have more nuts and seeds and avocado in their diet. And for others, they'll have more whole grains and fruits and have a higher carbohydrate intake. And I think that we have enough information today to clearly show that there is some variation in in what people will do better on. So that's where I like to say there's a theme. It's not a prescription. There is a theme. And if you're eating in that manner, I am all for people tailoring it, like you have and like Melissa has, to a way that leaves them feeling their best in their day-to-day.
0: Yeah, because Melissa can definitely eat more fat than me without feeling kind of... Bogged down. If I have too much fat, it just sort of, I don't feel great. You know, I feel sluggish. And my macronutrient ratio that I found has worked for me when I'm really wanting to get anabolic, which is to build muscle, is around that 60% of carbohydrates, 20% protein, 20% fat seems to be good for me. And I have tracked that very, very closely many times throughout my life to make sure that, you know, I'm actually hitting those macros. I do think that tracking is really interesting for everyone to do at some point in their life to actually track and see what you're eating. And I remember when I first started the juice fast, I just assumed I was getting enough calories because I was drinking so much juice. When I tracked it, I was so far down and it made me shift what I was doing. And that was the last time I actually tracked calories. I know now my calories because I sort of have general templates for my meals that i know will hit roughly that 60 20 20 and if it's 70 10 21 week and if it changes it doesn't matter as long as i'm roughly in that range i'm good to go as long as i'm eating enough carbohydrates right and when i say that helps me get anabolic and put on muscle i'm not talking about putting on weight as such it's not making me fat i'm actually with a high carbohydrate diet i'm actually well this sounds vain but it actually helps me get ripped when I eat more carbohydrates, I get more ripped, right? So can you give an idea? Because I'm not that familiar with other body types in terms of their macronutrient ratios because it's just not me. If a ectomorph is 60, 20, 20 roughly, what would you say to the other body types if someone wants to actually track the calories? And when I say track your calories, maybe do it for a week, you know, so you get a feeling for how you're progressing. Yeah, well,
2: I guess you could, you can technically, you can even do a plant-based ketogenic diet where you're getting your carbohydrates right down. But I don't think people need to do that. I think carbohydrates sitting at 30 or 40% is still considered low carbohydrate intake. And there's an advantage to that twofold. One is we were talking about fiber before and there, you know, there is the risk if you go too low on your carbohydrates that you tend to knock out a lot of fiber from your diet and that can be problematic not just for your for weight but also for for gut health and i said that the the bacteria producing those uh, hormones get produced from the bacteria that affect your appetite, but they're also producing metabolites that improve our gut lining, that affect inflammation, affect our cardiovascular system, affect our mood. So, a diversity of plants and having fiber in the diet goes far beyond just weight. So, I, I don't like going super, super low carb to the point where your fiber intake is not at 28 grams a day, at the least for a female and 38 grams a day, at least for a male. And for me personally, I probably sit somewhere more towards the middle. I probably get around 50% of my calories coming from carbohydrates, about 30% from fat and 20% from protein. So there's a little bit of sort of room for people to play and feel what feels best for them but the other i mean it makes sense that you have a high carb diet or sufficient carbohydrates in your diet and you're getting good results in the gym bodybuilders are not they're not adopting low carb diets and and they're a great example of a group of people who know how to build muscle and get the most out of their bodies and so we've known for a long time purely by just looking at these people, that carbohydrates don't make you fat. And in fact, from a performance point of view, replenishing your, your glycogen stores in your muscles can be very advantageous because it can help you lift more and work out for longer, which means more stimulus. You're providing greater stimulus to the body to then respond and adapt in, in response to, to grow new muscles.
0: Yeah and obviously there's huge correlation between maintaining a healthy muscle mass and longevity
2: huge and somewhat underplayed sometimes, I think, in in certain groups online. But I think there's been over the last five or so years for a while there, there was a lot of fear around protein intake. And rightly so from an animal protein intake, I think we definitely have science showing we want to minimize our exposure to animal protein in particular. uh, It is much richer in certain amino acids, which seem to activate aging pathways. But plant protein, on the other hand, uh, even at high higher amounts, seems to be very beneficial. And you're right, it is associated with longevity, mainly because having sufficient protein in our diet helps keep our bones strong. So it, it prevents osteopenia and osteoporosis. Calcium is not the only nutrient that's important for osteoporosis. And also it helps prevent sarcopenia, which is muscle loss, which happens as we get older. And it's really, really important for longevity to hold on to as much lean muscle as we can. So, you know, I know working with my my mom and her diet over the past five years or so, you know, one thing that I noticed with her is she's sort of mid-60s and she doesn't have a huge appetite. So something we really had to work on Was making sure that she was getting enough plant protein-rich foods in her diet consistently, you know, in order to be consuming adequate amounts and and hopefully preventing her from experiencing osteoporosis, which her mother has experienced and is very common in sort of
0: postmenopausal women. Mm. Yeah, you and I sometimes get into pretty frantic text message exchanges about diet, and a recent one was around the report you sent me or the study you sent me around higher protein diets well, plant-based protein diets actually being beneficial for longevity. And there is, if you look at, say, Volta Longo and some of these different people out there who do study this, there is a lot of talk around lower protein diets being beneficial for longevity. But tell us about this study, which I have read, and a lot of it goes over my head, but you're better at breaking this stuff down than me.
2: Yeah, that study, it really just looked at, uh, it was actually a meta-analysis of many different cohorts. And they, they tried to tease out a lot of the studies previously have just looked at total protein intake and looking at what we called sort of total mortality, which essentially means, you know, how much risk does someone have uh, in terms of dying prematurely compared to other people. And what this study did that was neat was actually split the protein source. So it looked at animal protein and plant protein. And in this study, it was very clear that actually having higher protein intake when coming from plants was protective against longevity. And there was benefits for longevity when people were substituting or eating less de-emphasizing animal protein in their diet in favor of plant protein. And this is really consistent. That's This is not just one finding. We've had lots and lots of studies come out of the last five years from different cohorts all across the world showing there is huge opportunity for all of us to grab a hold of by just de emphasizing the, the beef and the chicken and the turkey in our diet and consuming more beans and chickpeas and lentils and tofu and tempeh. And there's there's one study, Nick, of, of particular note, which was a twenty twenty study. It was looking at over four hundred thousand people that were followed for almost two years. And this is how remarkable this opportunity is. They found that but just replacing 3% of energy, right? 3% of energy for most people is about 60 or 70 calories a day, somewhere in that ballpark. So we're not talking about a lot. Just replacing 3% of energy from animal protein with plant protein, reduce their risk of premature death by 10% and reduce their risk of of dying from cardiovascular disease by 11 to 12%. And that's only looking at what happens if you replace 3% of calories. Imagine you're doing more of that And that number starts to grow quite quickly. And we're talking about huge improvements to your health and and lifespan.
0: Yeah. And that study you talked about did involve putting it all together over 700,000 people, I think. So we're not talking small numbers. We're talking substantial numbers. And when you look at um, the Seventh-day Adventists of Loma Linda, California, and the studies that they've done over decades there, again, you see that stepwise increase in mortality as the animal products come in. So in that particular community, the fully vegan people live longer than the vegetarians, the vegetarians live longer than the omnivores. So we're seeing this now, and that's why your book is called The Proof is in the Plants, because there is enough science now to make people comfortable that a plant-based, plant-centric diet is the diet to adopt to live longer. And you and I always say, you don't have to be 100% plant-based. If you decide to have a bit of fish here and there or whatever it is, no worries, it's all good, it's, it's up to you, right? But what we do agree upon, I think now the science shows that the plant-centric is the most important thing and if you can make that whole foods. We've spoken a bit about exercise. Actually, before I go into exercise, I wanna just quickly wrap up the food part of it, the carbohydrate part, because I think to give people something really tangible to understand, I wanna use Melissa as an example and then see if you can tweak her diet for different body types. okay. So Melissa, when she wakes up, she'll have water, then I'll make a big juice. We always have a big juice. She drinks about a liter of juice every day. Now she's breastfeeding, so her calorie intake is definitely higher, but this would be pretty consistent before she was breastfeeding. She will then have a big smoothie bowl, which will be a cup of wild blueberries, a banana, a big chunk of fennel a small amount of avocado, some flax seeds, chia seeds. That's kind of makes up the bulk of what she puts in her bowl. She won't snack in between breakfast and lunch. Lunchtime, again, pretty consistent. Uh, We tend to have a big salad. We'll have some sprouted legumes of some sort. I make a really beautiful sprouted seed or nut dressing of some sort. Today was a basil sunflower seed dressing. It was really, really yummy. And we're not shy on that. We put a lot of that on the salad because for me, being a vata or ectomorph, when I put fat on top of raw, it helps my body with that process and doesn't aggravate my vata, if that makes sense. Uh, A lot of people will know what I'm talking about. So we'll do that. But Melissa will often add in there some sort of starch for herself, like sweet potato or something, because she needs it. She tends, she needs more calories. I can get by at the moment on having a big salad When I say big, like it's a big salad and I do my own sprouting of legumes at home. I love sprouting mung beans and different types of lentils. Quinoa, I sprout. We had sprouted buckwheat today on our salad, which was really, really yummy. So that would be lunch. In the afternoon, she tends to have a snack of some sort. A lot of the time it will be fruit. Could just be an apple, whatever it is. Maybe rice crackers with some every mite and avocado, which is one of the favorites in our house. And then for dinner it's our biggest meal. That's where we'll have again starting off with a salad of some sort. We always like to get some raw in our diet. We think it's really really important to have consistently be eating raw components in our diet. Then we'll bring in a tempeh, usually this is a pretty much a non-soy house, we can talk about soy in a minute. So some sort of tempeh like chickpea tempeh or lupin tempeh and some root vegetables and then maybe some steamed vegetables. And these are like these are big meals. Okay, she eats quite a bit because for her body type, she can. She can put away quite a bit. Now, as I said, she's more of a mesomorph, endomorph or pizza gappa body type, okay? And so if you look at that, she's probably pretty well split in her macros there. Protein's going to be reasonably high. I'm going to say she's probably around maybe 50, 30, 20, 20 to fat, Mm -hmm. something like that. How would you tweak that? for
2: maybe a little more fat she might be a little more fat than 20 maybe I think.
0: yeah possibly how would you tweak that then for someone who's really lean okay and actually wants to maintain their body weight and we talk about women predominantly because there's mostly women listening to this podcast so let's let's focus on that a woman who is a really lean body type and has trouble maintaining her weight what would you do for that
2: well firstly there's a lot of things that melissa is doing that are we can learn from that are very good and it kind of summarizes a bit of what we've spoken about it's all whole foods by the sounds of it or pretty much all most of it, it. yeah something else that i picked up on and we haven't spoken about this is the importance of good sized meals we know from from quite a few studies now sometimes if you want to lose weight it can seem like the right thing to do is to cut down and eat a really small meal for example
0: right yeah. But
2: really what ends up happening is you're not satisfying your body and you end up getting these crazy hunger cravings and, and people tend to end up snacking on more calorie dense, unhealthy foods. So really actually focusing your day, whether you eat two or three meals, or whatever it may be around making sure that those are a good size, obviously full of really high quality foods can be a really good strategy to lean into. And that's something that I often, you know, many times I've had this conversation with women in particular, and they fear having a a really good nourishing, good size meal, and it, it can lead to excessive snacking. So I think that's something that's important to sort of pick up on there. You know, I'm not sure that I would change too much with Melissa's diet. I think that it's hard for me to be prescriptive in terms of everyone listening because it does depend on their overall body type.
0: Mm -hmm. And lifestyle.
2: And lifestyle, right, how active they are. And if someone was more active, for example, and was wanting to build lean muscle, which can be advantageous from a weight loss perspective, particularly if they're doing resistance exercise, we haven't spoken too much about exercise, but in that instance, I might get them to lean a little more into protein-rich plant foods, Mm -hmm which again, as we spoke about earlier, are very filling. So there might be a little more emphasis on whether it's portion size in those meals or adding more protein-rich foods into the different foods that aren't in there already to try and increase the amount of protein in the diet up a little bit. I think those are the main things I'm thinking about when I'm looking at someone's diet is, first, is it whole food-based? Second, has it got sufficient fiber in the diet? Is there a good amount of fiber? As I said before, 28 grams is a minimum per day, 38 grams is a minimum for a man. And like you said before, it can be helpful to track some of this stuff sometimes if you kind of have no idea and you can use Chronometer or MyFitnessPal and just get a little bit of a feel for where you're at, what's your baseline. And then I'm looking at protein and you know the, the recommendation, Nick, for protein sits at around point eight grams per kilogram. And that's sort of adequate amount. But actually, there is a strong case for consuming more than that, particularly if it's coming from plant protein, if you want to lose weight. And so I would be suggesting that for a female who is doing, usually there's some exercise, some resistance exercise happening at the same time, I would be recommending around that 1.3 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. To, to be your protein target. And so if you're ticking off all of those, I think that's the most important thing for, for people to focus on.
0: So then if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, I'm that person who just doesn't matter what I do, I just can't lose the weight. It's just not working. Is there a template? And again, I know it's hard because we're trying to be prescriptive to a very broad audience. But in terms of best practices... We've spoken about whole foods, we've spoken about fiber, but coming back to high carb and low carb, is it going to be helpful for someone who just has not been able to lose weight for a number of years? Is it going to be helpful for them to actually decrease the carbohydrate intake? Like, What's the the rules around that?
2: Well, I think if we go back to those studies, what they showed was there was a great deal of variation. So some people on low carb did really well, some did poorly. And then on high carb, some did really well and some did poorly. So it may be that you are, let's say, for example, eating a high-carbohydrate diet and you're one of those people that will do better on a low-carb. Absolutely. So, so I think you raise a good point. If you've, just, if you've been doing all of this stuff and it's not working, then I see no problem with changing that around. I don't think that that changes anything else that we've said around a whole food focus, trying to keep it plant-predominant, lots of fiber. That stuff stands no matter where your macronutrient ratio falls. There are some other things that maybe we can go over that that people can think about, which may be contributing to, to why they are not losing weight. But perhaps they have already explored all of these. And then in that, that instance, I would suggest looking at the macronutrient ratio. But some of these other things would be to look at how hydrated you are. Are you drinking enough water throughout the day? Sometimes we feel hungry. We're actually thirsty. How mindful are you when you're eating? I know myself, Nick. If if I'm a little bit stressed, or you know, on my phone, or even watching the football, that meal it gets it gets gobbled down a lot faster. Mm. And and I'm, I'm not much, being chewed, and it's not chewed, and I'm much more likely to overconsume as opposed to being present, looking at the food, chewing the food, taking your time. And in fact, that's one, sort of one of the principles out of one of the blue zones, the Okinawans, they're very mindful and they have, uh, they have a rule where they push the bowl away when they're 80% full. Now, in order to know that you're 80% full, you have to be a very mindful eater. Mm. And so that's just something to think about. They built that into their lifestyle, but essentially they realize when you're 80% full, if you push it away in about 20 minutes, once that food has had some time to digest you will actually feel 100% full. So that's a few other strategies. And then one other one that I think is quite obvious, but it's it's important and I did put it in the book, is eat more home-cooked meals. Mm. We, You know, you can eat really well all week and then you can go out on the weekend and you can go out and have quite a few alcoholic drinks with a meal. And that one day out on the weekend, you may consume enough calories to bring your whole week into a calorie surplus, and so it is. It's important to be mindful of that. You might be doing everything right for six days a week, and it could just be one day that's throwing you off a little bit. So be mindful of that. We know that there's a study, uh, twenty fourteen study, that it looked at ten thousand adults, and they compared people who rarely cooked at home to those who were cooking at home six to seven times per week, right, and what they found was that those who were cooking at home just six or seven times per week, they consumed about a thousand calories less per week than those who were eating out more regularly. And this makes sense. You know, when we're eating out, we can try and choose the healthiest of places, but there's always a lot of hidden calories that are added in to those meals, be it at our favorite restaurants or the, the quick places we go for a takeaway into the dressings or, or whatnot to make them taste really good. And over a year, that thousand calories per week, Nick, works out to be equivalent to seven kilograms of butter. And so back to to what I was saying early on, it doesn't take something that big to add up over time. And so what, what I think is really important is looking at your week, thinking about how often are you cooking at home, And look, I'm all for going out and and having fun and being social, but be mindful of it and think about what you are consuming when you're out and about and certainly think about alcohol because that's one that we all tend to turn a blind eye to and and like to think that alcohol is calorie-free, but unfortunately, it's not.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I wanted to circle back to, I mentioned soy before. I think it's important to touch on that quickly because when I said this house is largely soy-free... I only mention that because Melissa's just not as much of a fan of soy. So she doesn't have it. So I don't tend to have it either. But I know in the plant based community, it's a very popular source. It's also very, very high in protein, which is, you know, one of the big benefits of soy. If I do have any, it's always like a small batch tempeh, for example. Like I don't do tofu, but I would potentially very occasionally do some sort of tempeh. And I think that comes from the fear of soy comes from that old belief of it being estrogenic and not understanding the difference between that and phytoestrogens. You've probably spoken about this till you're blue in the face, but can you just give us a 30-second <laughs> spiel on, on soy and why you're a fan?
2: I like how you said that that old belief. I mean, I mean, I, I know you're talking about you personally, yeah, but let true. me tell you, it's, it's, not old. it's still rife. It's still out there. And I get it. I get it. I was scared of soy at one point, I'm sure. I think to summarize this very quickly, not all science is equal. There are different levels of science, some are less reliable, some are more reliable, and often online in conversations about nutrition when there's two opposing sides, it's very hard for the layperson to work out is person a's opinion is that based on better science than person B's? Who should I believe?
0: Especially if that person has 300,000 followers on Instagram, but they haven't actually done the science.
2: Definitely, and soy is a great example that speaks to this. So there is a lot of rhetoric online around soy having feminizing effects. And there is particularly a lot of this information is to scare men in particular. And you you see people talking about man boobs and uh, gynecomastia. And so where does this come from? Where does this idea come from that we should fear soy? Well, there's two sources that I've been able to find and One thing that that I do, Nick, is if if there are claims like that being made, I want to know, I'm just fascinated to understand because I want to understand the scientific truth. Where is that coming from? How has that person formed that opinion? And so I've spent a lot of time looking at this and there are two main sources of science that are being used to scare people off of soy. And the first is rat studies. And in these studies, they they feed rats soy foods and they look at their hormones. And they have found estrogenic effects in these rats, feminizing type of effects. Now, here's the thing. Those rats are being exposed to an because exposure in nutrition science is so important. So important. There are many foods where, if we consumed too much of them, they would be bad, but in small amounts, they're very health promoting. And in these studies, the amount of soy that that rat is being exposed to, if you were to look at a, a gram of soy per kilogram of body mass, is just ginormous. It isn't anything that we would even be exposed to over a week or a month. So it's not reflective of human consumption. So that's an important thing to understand firstly. And another example of something that's good at a certain exposure level but not at another is oxygen. I bet everyone listening thinks oxygen is health promoting. I think we can all agree that we we need oxygen. But in, in the air we breathe, it's 21% oxygen. Now, if you were to inhale 100% oxygen, shortly you would pass out and then you would die. And so would we say that oxygen is toxic and harmful to humans? Or would we say that, well, at the exposure level that we're exposed to it at, it's actually very health promoting. That's the same thing with soy. So the rat studies are one source. The second source, and again, this speaks to exposure, and these are the only sources I've been able to find that speak to any, any reason to be worried about soy, is a case study. There was a case study of a human. So this is better because it's in a human. But again, it's a case study. N equals one man, and it's after the fact. So he presented to his doctor. It's not a controlled trial, so we don't know what he was actually doing. But he reported that he was uh, he had some sensitivity around his nipples, and he was consuming three quarts of soy milk a day, which is twelve cups. About twelve cups of soy milk a day he was consuming. Three liters, sorry, and that's not an amount of soy food or soy milk that we would be recommending anyone consume. I'm sure that many people would have a problem if they had 12 cups of broccoli or 12 cups of cow's milk a day for that matter. And so if that was where all of the evidence was, I would get it. I'd be like, well, there there's mechanistic studies in rats, even though the exposure is not the same. There's this case study, maybe let's err on the side of caution. However, that's not where the science ends. So even just last year, there was a meta-analysis that took 38 clinical trials. So these are clinical trials where we are actually controlling for variables and have much more precision and they're much much more reliable for us to take the results and use to inform public health. And all of these 38 studies were feeding male humans, not animals, soy, and were measuring their estrogen and testosterone levels.
0: Which seems like a pretty obvious setup. You'd think if you're going to actually test this out, that's the thing to measure, right?
2: Yeah. So it was very, very consistent across the board. And these studies, I should say, some of them were six weeks, some of them were up to a year. So there was sufficient time if if something was going to happen to hormones, you would expect to have seen it. And they consistently showed no effect. There was zero effect, negative effect on estrogen levels. On total testosterone, on free testosterone. And so, if we just take a a step back and come back to what I said at the start, not all science is equal. Unfortunately, that's not how things happen on social media sometimes. And we see people communicating low levels of science as if they are the best science we have. And so, All I can say is that when we look at the evidence hierarchy, we look at the strongest evidence, there is no reason to fear soy consumption. I think like any food, any food, of course, consume it within reason. One to three serves a day maximum, which is in line with traditional soy consumption in certain regions of the world. And all of the science shows that that is perfectly fine and healthy. It's not going to affect your hormone levels. It's a really high protein rich source of food and you know and when you're consuming it at that that level it's it's not going to crowd out other healthy foods in your diet
0: mm. well answered thank you so we've been focusing on the food here so you know because this is about weight loss it is about high carb low carb and we've established that you don't have to be afraid of carbs whether that's coming from fruit whole grains um, certain vegetables like starchy carbs You don't have to be afraid of them. We want to be focusing on predominantly plants, a plant-centric diet, whole food-based. We want to be chewing our foods properly, being mindful. We want to also take into consideration our body types, our unique genetics, essentially, and potentially even counting calories to see what we're actually eating. I think that's immensely helpful. If you're hitting a stumbling block and don't know why, that can be really, really helpful. So in terms of the main point of this podcast and carbs, we've established you don't have to be afraid of them. Everyone's different. In fact, they can be very beneficial for a whole host of different things. Let's shift a little bit here to exercise because when it comes to weight loss, people, I would think, and I'm making an assumption that the most of the focus would go towards exercise when people want to lose weight as opposed to food. I could be wrong, but it seems like Maybe people go out for a long run and they think they can eat whatever they want. I don't know. I haven't really had to think about it because I've never had weight issues as such. But if someone's exercising, putting on weight and getting really frustrated, what could be going on there? What's the issue there?
2: Okay. So I like to think about nutrition and exercise as different tools, and we need to know what they're helpful for. And when it comes to weight loss, by a long, long way, the biggest lever you can pull is your diet the food you're eating. That is by far the biggest lever that one can pull. And there's some very interesting research, Nick, that's come out from a guy called Herman Ponser. And he has developed what's called the constrained energy model. And I think this will blow a few people's minds, but it also helps us realize what these tools of exercise and diet are for. And I don't I want to preface this that I'm not saying that exercise is not important, it is very important, but, but I'll, I'll summarize why in a little bit. So what he looked at was he was working with the Hadza tribe in Africa. And these are people who are modern day hunter gatherers. They still walk around 18 kilometers a day. And he was measuring energy expenditure, the amount of energy that people in the Hadza tribe were burning, utilizing on a daily basis. Now, if I was to say to you, if you were to compare someone from the Hadza with, say, someone in Australia who's sitting down all day, not walking 18 kilometers a day, that was similar, same gender, similar sort of body height and biometrics, who would you expect to be burning more energy?
0: Hmm. Of course, the Hadza tribe.
2: Yeah, so that's kind of what everyone would assume and has been the way of thinking for a long time. Interestingly, the energy expenditures were not different, despite the fact that those in in the Hadza are walking around 18 kilometers a day. And so he developed what's called the constrained energy model. And what this speaks to is that, again, we spoke about survival earlier and about how, from a biological point of view, resisting these highly palatable energy-dense foods is very hard because we're genetically wired to want them to survive. Now, also from a survival point of view, from an evolutionary point of view, our body actually doesn't want to let go of fat, not very easily. And again, it's for the same reason. It wants to have some reservoirs of energy to tap into should food become scarce again. So the constrained energy model that he's developed, which has been, you know, his work has been widely recognised as as groundbreaking. Is that when we go out and do exercise, a lot of us would think that on our Fitbit or on our whatever app we're using, if it says we burnt three hundred calories, that perhaps we could eat three hundred calories more food and be in the same position. And I'm sure you've heard that pop up before. I often see things on social media uh, about that, about X minutes on the treadmill equals you know a bliss ball or whatever, and the problem with that thinking is that our body adjusts. And when we do exercise, even if our Fitbit says we burnt 300 calories, our body actually conserves energy elsewhere in other systems, immune, inflammatory, other systems in the body that require energy. It actually dials those down to compensate. And so the role of energy, the role of exercise in weight loss according to this model, has been overplayed a little bit. And it does make sense. We all have heard that you can't outrun a bad diet. And so I actually spoke with Herman Ponser about this and he's copped a lot of criticism from the fitness industry, of course, because the fitness industry is built on exercising to lose weight. And so this research has very much challenged that. I don't want people to think that exercise is not beneficial. It is. It's hugely beneficial from a mental health point of view, from a cardiovascular point of view. But what his research is showing is that if that's the number one tool that you're leaning on and you're not thinking about your diet and you're out there smashing yourself on the treadmill, it's perhaps not the most efficient way of going about it. And so you are going to get far better bang for your buck by looking at all these things that we've spoken about today, how can you think about adjusting your diet, whether that's eating more fiber, whether that is playing around with the macronutrient ratio and working out what is the right amount of fats and carbs for you to leave you feeling the fullest on the least amount of calories and to help you get into a position where you're losing weight. So that's very interesting information when it comes to exercise. But one thing I'd like to add to that is... When we have more muscle, we burn more energy. And this was something that I spoke with Herman about. So there still is an advantage from an exercise point of view to building muscle, to building lean muscle. And so if I was to recommend a form of exercise for people to do that can help with body composition, because also we have to talk about body composition here, it would be more focused around resistance exercise, where we're actually you know, loading, progressively loading the muscles, placing them under some stress and sending a signal for them to respond and grow stronger.
0: And again, it comes back to body types as well, doesn't it? Because I was going to say, of course, resistance training is so important because we need that muscle uh, to be maintained or to be increased and we need the bone density from bearing more weight. And of course, if you go back 100,000 years, most likely, there is significant weight bearing going on. I remember hearing an interview with Arthur Haynes, and he was saying, that I think in the first four years of a child's life, that child barely touches the ground, is carried everywhere. We're talking about, sorry, a specific tribe, this was. Their feet barely touch the ground, they're carried everywhere by the mother, and they cover around 3,000 kilometers in those years being carried the entire time. So you think about what that's doing for the mother's health like i mean that's just extraordinary right and you compare that to the modern day person how far we are from that and if we look at body types coming back again let's let's just stick with the the western definition ecto meso, endo. so skinny medium large essentially so for the ectomorph it's generally recommended that you know the pilates the yoga these sorts of things are great for ectos because necto's nervous system is not as wired for smashing out weights and going to failure, for example, but you still want to be doing some sort of resistance training. And that comes from things like yoga as well. There are positions that do, they're quite challenging actually in terms of body weight. And then for the mesomorph, you know, the F45, that's sort of like a classic meso. You can picture them banging out CrossFit. It's a really great thing for mesomorphs. And endomorphs are the body type, the larger body type that can really handle that more steady state cardio going for long walks, you know, jogs, these sorts of things, uh, it's really beneficial. Whereas if you did that to more of an ectomorph, they can kind of waste away into nothing. So again, taking our body types into account but making sure every single person has some form of resistance training adapted for their body types. And if you're listening to this and you're not doing some form of resistance training, I think, yes, the diet's important, hugely important, possibly the most important, but make sure there is some sort of resistance training because you are most likely statistically going to live longer, right? And we're not talking about lifespan. We want to talk about health span, like how long are we living healthily? Are we peacefully dying in our sleep at 100 or are we you know, spending the last 30 years of our life in pain? And I can't remember the specific study I heard about it on a podcast recently where there was a group of scientists that looked at the length of time an animal or an insect is in gestation, right? So essentially inside the womb. And they compared that to lifespan. I found this so fascinating. And they came up with a a formula, a calculation that they could apply to basically any living form, insect, animal. And it was always accurate to within a very small percentage of the average lifespan of that particular animal. When they applied it to humans, however, (laughs) <laughs> the length of time in gestation means that on average right i'm not talking about an exceptionally healthy amazingly perfect fit person who tracks everything and is like biohacking i'm talking about on average humans should live 124 years based on their gestation
2: right so we're not we're not living up to
0: our potential not even close and if you look at someone who's really living their potential we that could be 140 Right, mm.
2: I want you to send me that. By the way,
0: yes, I know. It's that isn't that inspiring? It's amazing. That's so inspiring because you think, well, we've sort of grown up thinking that seventy, eighty, ninety is the norm, and that when you get old, you get senile, and all these things happen to you. You go to Okinawa, and that's not the case. You see them working in the fields at a hundred years old, and you know this is the sort of thing. I think it's important for people to understand is that we can reset expectations about how good we can feel in the modern day. And the reason we've come across so many of our health challenges is because of what we're putting in our mouths. And you said it's the biggest lever we can pull. And I pulled the lever and went plan-based a few years ago. And I can tell you, it is by far the greatest lever I've ever pulled in my life in terms of how I feel. And the exercise is, of course, hugely beneficial. I love feeling strong and having muscle and being toned, I love that. But if I'm doing that and eating a crappy diet, it's no point doing that, right? It's better than nothing, but it's not going to see me have that health span. I want to just quickly race through some questions. So we did put a question out to our audiences about you know, what questions do they have for you in relation to weight loss. So if we could treat these like a rapid fire, because you've been on the show before and you've done our traditional rapid fire, let's do a rapid fire. We'll see if you can do it. Because some of these questions might be a bit (laughs) longer. Sure. The importance of meal timing and nutrient timing. Can you talk to that?
2: Not so important compared to your food quality. So if I was to prioritize it, you're focusing first on getting the foundations right, the types of food, and we've spoken, we've addressed that. Interestingly, in terms of meal timing, and I'm not sure that you will love to hear this, (laughs) it might change the way that you structure things. I'll add this in for what it's worth. There is some very interesting research from a field called chrononutrition. In fact, this is right up your alley, Nick, and I'm probably going to send you to a rabbit hole here. And what they're looking at is circadian rhythms and the effect that our meal timing has on those. And in short, these circadian rhythms are natural fluctuations throughout the day, uh, physiological processes, metabolic processes. Think about heart rate think about blood pressure think about the level of different hormones these are all moving throughout the day and these natural circadian rhythms rely on cues from the external world from our environment to keep them in sync and essentially what that means is our environment is helping them understand what we are about to do as a human and therefore prepare our body for that so what are these external cues well light is is a huge one and I know that you wear blue blockers at night. And essentially, as the sun is going down and we're losing that light exposure, we get an increase in melatonin. You've probably had many people on the show talk about this, but melatonin goes up, cortisol starts to drop off, and our body is getting ready for sleep. And also, what affects these hormones is meal timing. And interestingly, the main thing that that this research has unearthed so far, and and really I will flag this is emerging, this is like the last five years, and so there's still some work to be done, but there are enough clinical trials now in humans to have picked up a bit of a pattern for things, particularly for people who have poor metabolic health, so people that have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. What has been observed is that in these clinical trials, Definitely, we want to have make sure our dinner is not within a couple of hours of going to bed. If we're eating too close to going to bed, it actually affects the melatonin and the cortisol and will affect our ability to get into a deep, restful sleep. So there's a, a tip around dinner time.
0: I'll just add to that quickly that for us personally, we have dinner at 5.30 on the dot like we are so religious about the 5.30 dinner. We couldn't even go earlier, to be honest. I'd like to go earlier, but we are in bed 7.30 at the latest. Yeah,
2: so you're you're a little, I guess, different to the subjects in this study. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt around meal size, because I know you said your dinner was your largest meal. Mm -hmm. uh, And it might be in these studies that what they observed was uh, slightly problematic with a larger meal at dinner was because it was actually much later in the day. Towards nighttime. Mm-hmm. 5.30 is still daytime and the body's uh, alert and it's light, usually still a little bit light. And so the body is still in that active mode where it is geared for digestion. That's different to having a huge meal at 10 p.m., 9, 10 p.m., where it's pitch black and you've come home and you've been outside and it's been black. And so what they found in these studies is that in terms of blood glucose control, and in terms of fat oxidation, the the best meal size was a larger breakfast, a medium-sized lunch, and then a lighter dinner, which tended to be more of a sort of salad-type setup. And this is actually in reverse, I guess, to some of the information maybe 5, 10 years ago about intermittent fasting. And so with intermittent fasting, particularly people were shifting usually to starting their eating window at midday to 8 p.m. So first of all, what's happening there is you're actually putting more of your calories into the back end of the day when you're less active. And that seems to be disadvantageous for health and for uh, blood glucose control, but also from a weight point of view. So what seems to be, I guess, the, the current takeaway from this area of chrononutrition, and this was a rapid fire question, so probably not a rapid fire answer here, is to start your, if, you're, if you are someone that likes a shorter eating window, and we haven't spoken much about that, but for some people, that is a really effective tool to reduce their caloric intake, and it works really well. And so if that's you, I would suggest opening that window an hour or so after you wake up, and it's going to finish earlier in the day, as opposed to starting at midday till 8pm. And then whichever way you do do it, Try to have more of your calories in the front half of the day where you're more active and your body's going to better utilize it, a bit of a lighter dinner and allowing a couple of hours before you go to bed to just have fluids, water, et cetera, and, and not be intaking food. In addition, of course, if you're uh, to set yourself up for success with sleep, trying to dim the lights and get away from bright light exposure on the various screens and you know keep the room cool.
0: I mean, I 100% agree with you and something I've been acutely aware of because in my own studies of Ayurveda, it's, many listeners will know this, that the middle of the day, 10 to 2 is the pitta time of day, which is your uh, strongest time of digestion. The digestive fire is the strongest, the sun is directly above. And in, in Ayurveda, it's always said that the largest meal of the day should be around lunchtime. And I 100% agree that the smallest meal should be dinner. What I have found for me personally is because of the way that I work and my brain being so active during the day, I don't tend to digest as well during the day because I'm more active and my body's not as uh, relaxed. I've spoken about this with my physician, Dr. Stephen Cabral, who's been on the show many, many times. And something we put into place earlier on was a bigger meal for me in the evening because for my body type, that tended to work. But I don't think that is the best strategy for everyone. That said, you mentioned an important thing. I am still eating technically in the daytime. I'm finishing my meal by six o'clock. I don't have another meal until eight a.m. So I'm still getting a 14 hour window. And I think as I've looked into intermittent fasting, what's become apparent to me is that going at least, at least 12 hours overnight between meals, I would say that's the absolute minimum. And that is a fast essentially, That's that's a type of fasting. I found the sweet spot for me is about 14 hours, and that's plenty. But for my body type, if I push it too far, it's disadvantageous to my body type. So again, it comes down to you, your unique constitution. And if you find that having a big meal interrupts your sleep, and you can track it with an Oura ring, something like that, then mix things up. And you might find that if you are more of a endomorph body type, um, a gaper body type, that those lighter evening meals will be hugely impactful on how you sleep, and then your weight as well. It's an important point. So quick question, what type of exercise is best for weight loss? We sort of looked at that and we've mentioned that resistance training is important. Is there anything else to add to the types of exercise? Not
2: particularly. I think you made a good point that resistance exercise comes in many forms. So it's not just the typical bodybuilder in the gym. If that's your thing, then that's great. But there can be body weight resistance. There are many ways of doing resistance exercise. So finding a form of resistance exercise that feels right for you, that leaves you feeling good, and it's something that you can do you know, daily or at least three or four times a week.
0: Okay. Fat loss. Do I need to be afraid of fat?
2: No, and we didn't touch too much on fat, but it's similar to carbohydrates. Fat is an umbrella term. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't need to be scared of fat. There is good reason to limit saturated fats. Mm-hmm and that is off the back of significant research that has shown high consumption of saturated fat increases our risk of heart disease. Now, you're still going to get some saturated fat in your diet. Everyone will. It's, it's in plant foods, and that's fine. The great thing is when you eat in a plant-predominant manner, naturally what happens, unless you're eating cups and cups of coconut oil because that is an exception, uh, naturally what happens is your saturated fat intake drops right down and then you get a good amount of these unsaturated fats in your diet.
0: Mm. I remember when we first met, we were speaking about fat, actually. Uh, I think at the beach one day, we were having a picnic, and we were speaking about fertility and all sorts of things. And again, at the time, I was more paleo, and you mentioned something about minimizing saturated fats. And if you're coming from a paleo slant, then that's kind of like blasphemy, right? (laughs) Um, And I must say that as I have decreased the saturated fat in my diet, I have felt infinitely better. I've never really measured my lipids closely. I've never really felt like I've had a cholesterol issue or anything like that. But certainly the tangible thing for me is how I feel digestively, my sleep. How do I feel when I wake up in the morning? And I did notice on a higher saturated fat diet, I was much slower to start in the mornings. I had more inflammation in the body as well. So, you know, I think Don't be afraid of fat, but be mindful of the fat you're actually eating. We've spoken about sleep. That was a question that came up a lot. Are there certain foods I should avoid to see best weight loss results?
2: Ultra processed, but I would throw in there, we've spoken about oils. And I think that out there, there is a crowd that's very anti-oil. And there are many different types of oils, and there are some that I wouldn't recommend consuming. But then there are oils like olive, for example, or avocado oil which are completely fine oils and healthy oils to cook with, but if weight loss is your goal, then just remember they're very calorically dense and one tablespoon goes a long way. So my recommendation to anyone who's trying to lose weight is to consider that because sometimes you can be cooking dinner, it can be very easy to go a little overboard on, on the oils and you don't necessarily see it and then you know you're adding 2 300 calories extra in every night and over a week that's adding up so it's just something to to be conscious of
0: and should someone who wants to lose weight should they be weighing themselves
2: comes down to the individual if you don't like weighing yourself and when you weigh yourself you feel negative about it and it gets you feeling down then no i don't think that you should weigh yourself because it's not the only way to measure progress so if you do feel fine weighing yourself, then there is some research to suggest that it can help. And if that's you, the best way of weighing yourself in a way that is reliable is every morning when you wake up, go to the bathroom, weigh yourself on the same scales, ideally in the same spot without clothes on and write that number down. But remember, day to day, you will have fluctuations in fluid levels in particular. So rather than than worrying about what you weigh today versus yesterday, at the end of the week, take a seven-day average. And then the next week, you'll do the same and you're just comparing the week average to the week average not the day to day changes because we know from lots of studies the day to day changes are not reflective in your fat loss so you might get a bit of a fright and see that your numbers gone up and think hang on i'm doing everything right here and that can be very frustrating and and may see you sort of fall off the bandwagon so i don't want that to happen but if weighing weighing yourself's not for you because it does make you feel down and feel unhappy about yourself, then there are other markers of progress. How are your energy levels? How are you sleeping? How are you fitting into a pair of jeans? There are a number of things outside of the number on the scale that you can lean on to use as a measure of progress.
0: Yeah, back when I read the Four Hour Work Week, gosh, must have been two thousand and seven or something. It was a long time ago. Whenever I can't remember, it was a long time, but I thought awesome, because I was in real estate at the time. I want to create something which brings in this residual income. So I designed an app called Body Map. And Body Map was essentially for measuring your body, including weight, but mainly for the, you know, circumference of limbs and those sorts of things. And tracking that. And it would graph everything separately and together, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that quite interesting because I'd never really done it. I had to do it to sort of learn how to get this app right. And I thought that was really interesting, was measuring my body that way. Most recently, I've been weighing myself. And it was super interesting because I know if I look in the mirror, for example, I should, based on my past history, weigh about four kilos more than I do based on how I look, just pure on muscle mass. After doing the juice fast, I cleared out, this is my theory, I cleared out kilos of impacted fecal matter, which I think is really interesting and something we haven't spoken about is the amount of old waste we're carrying around. So weight loss is obviously important, but we also need to look at elimination. How well are you eliminating, right? Because if you think about a rubbish bin, it's been in your kitchen for a week and it's really starting to stink. Well, you didn't take out the trash quick enough. It's like our bowels. If we don't take the trash out, meaning regular bowel movements, that's what they're getting like. They're getting pretty stinky, pretty putrid and pretty impacted. And when I say impacted, I mean this stuff can end up like concrete in your colon. So after doing the juice fast, on day 30, I was still having several bowel movements a day, right? Day 30, several bowel movements a day. It was still coming out. So God knows how much is in there. But I think that's another thing to think about is elimination. How well are you eliminating? And look at resources that can support that. It might be kickstarting your weight loss with a course of maybe 10 colonics over three months or two months and actually moving some of this old stagnant waste out of the body. I know lots of people who've had quite big bellies and have gone and done and a long series of very consistent colonics and cleared out a lot of stuff and it has improved their health. Just You can't even measure how much it's improved their health. So I just wanted to mention that because I know that I have technically lost weight, but physically I'm actually bigger than I used to be. I want to wrap this up, Simon, by talking about your book and in part three of the book, you talk about making the shift and you've got the eight plant proof principles of a healthy whole foods, plant based diet. And I think this is a great way to finish because it kind of summarizes up a lot what we have spoken about today. Principle one is focusing on food groups, not macronutrients. Principle two, be fiber obsessed and protein aware. And coming back to fiber, when I've tracked my fiber, I tend to sit in the 70 to 100 grams per day, which is high. You'd have to say that's quite high. But if you look at a lot of Paleolithic poo samples, which were fossilized, when they actually studied these paleo poos, they found there were about 108 grams of fiber per day, which is pretty phenomenal because I know I eat a lot of fiber, a lot of plants, and I rarely get over 100 grams. So something to think about in the whole paleo argument, I shouldn't say argument, it's not an argument, but something to think about what we used to eat. The foods we ate were far, far higher in fiber. If you had a berry back in the day, it was mostly fiber and less sugar. So that's something to think about.
2: And you mentioned wild berries before, and that's one of the advantages if you can. Wild berries are, are much higher in fiber and much lower in sugar.
0: Yeah, we actually don't ever have... Oh, that's not true. I do buy some locally grown cultivated blueberries because I just like getting the fresh fruit. Principle three, diversity is key for gut health. And I know on your social media, you speak a lot about trying the is it 40, what is it in the 40 different foods per week?
2: Yeah, it's 40. Well, 30 plant foods and then I leave room for 10 herbs and spices in there. Yeah. They can be dry or they can be fresh.
0: Which, you know, there are different supplements out there which are just a mixture of different whole food plants. I think they can be really helpful sometimes because you might have 20, 30, 40 different plants, just whole foods, you know, dehydrated and put into a powder. That, okay, it's not a, um, a fresh food, but it is... Going to still provide different types of fibre and feed your gut. So, you know we can hack this stuff a little bit if we're not getting it in our diets naturally. Principle four was consider nutrients of focus. Nutrients of focus. Can you give us a quick thirty seconds of what they are?
2: So this is, I guess, tailored for people that are following a sort of plant predominant or plant exclusive diet. And in short, every single diet needs to be appropriately planned. There are pros and cons with every diet. The pros of a plant-based diet are the health span and longevity benefits. And Potential cons are if you're not planning it, there are some nutrients that you could fall short on. So it's good to be aware of those and it doesn't take a, a whole lot of reading to, to get across them and a whole lot of planning. Those are omega-3s, vitamin B12, vitamin D, calcium, iodine, iron, selenium, and zinc. And so in the book, I walk through each of those so that everyone can just feel comfortable as to where they're going to source those from in adequate amounts.
0: And I think from memory, did you not get involved in formulating Essential 8 with NutriKind, the supplement? Was that something you were involved in?
2: Yeah. So I, that's a brand out of Sydney and I formulated a product for them called Essential 8, which contains most of those ingredients.
0: Yeah, which they've sent to us. And I actually said to Melissa yesterday, funny enough, I'm like, you know what? We should reach back out to NutriKind because that was a really, really convenient way to have it. Principle five, when we eat matters. So we've spoken about that today in terms of meal timing. Principle six, drink water for thirst. Is there a guideline for the amount of water we need to drink? Because for me personally, I just drink when I'm thirsty. I don't think about how much I'm drinking.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the guide, there are guidelines out there, but the guidelines actually are, are not that helpful. And the reason is uh, the amount of fluid that we all require is very different. It depends on how big you are, how much exercise you do, how much you sweat. And so the very best bit of advice I can give someone is if your pee is not clear or straw color, then other than perhaps having a whole lot of B vitamins in a supplement, then you're not hydrated. And so you should always be drinking water to the point where your pee is clear or straw color and if it's not then it's it's an indicator that you need to drink a bit more and over time you should get a feel for how much you require based on your body size and activity.
0: Perfect. Principle seven, customization is key which we've spoken about and principle eight, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good which is really important. We spoke about tracking your nutrients, these sorts of things, your macros but don't become anal about it. You know, Have fun with this and just relax because I definitely have I am a perfectionist, so I know this is important for me to keep track of myself, to not become too anal about things. So for all the listeners out there, I really, really highly recommend you go and check out Simon's book. The proof is in the plants; It's out everywhere. Simon, if someone's overseas listening to this, what's the overseas ordering process at the moment? Just Amazon?
2: Yeah, sure. So... The book will be on shelf in the, in America and Canada November 1st. So that's a little while away and on shelf in the UK and Ireland September 1st. People from those countries can buy it now from book depository. But I understand there will be a lot of people there that probably shop regularly with Amazon, for example. And if that's the case, then those dates that I mentioned are going to be the ones to, to wait for and you can grab a copy then.
0: Mm, beautiful. Well, mate, thank you so much for being here, it's a nice excuse just to hang out and talk to one of my my good friends. Yes, it is. But also to spread some really important information and to hopefully clear up some confusion. Also, please go and check out Simon's podcast, the Plant Proof Podcast, and his social media at plant underscore proof. I have to say, you know, the information you put out is absolutely top notch. I think your podcast is probably my top podcast other than Melissa's podcast. There's Rich Roll is another one I love in terms of in the more sort of plant-based community focused. And there's some creative ones I love to follow as well. But yours is the one I consistently come back to and always enjoy. I tend to listen to it when I'm working out actually. It's a time I, I love listening to podcasts and in the sauna, but you're a real gift to really to anyone who's interested in improving their health and what you've managed to achieve in a relatively short time because when we first became friends you didn't have a podcast you were asking us about setting up a podcast and to see what you've created in that short time is really amazing and I'm proud to call you a friend and and mate I love you very much and thank you so much for being here oh mate
2: too kind feelings are mutual I love you guys And, and both of you were big inspirations for me starting the show so really appreciate the support both of you have given me and i hope the listeners today have learned something i hope we have clarified a few things and if i was to leave a a final message to people it's not putting too much pressure on yourself and realizing that although we threw out a lot of stuff in this episode most of us are much better at developing new habits simply by making very small incremental changes so don't feel like you're pressured to go out there and change a million things tomorrow take it easy, reflect on the areas that you may want to make changes in and sort of go at your own pace.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, Simon.
2: Thank you, mate.
1: Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think.
0: So, so good. Guys, wasn't that amazing? I mean, I think the most important thing about this conversation is those main takeaways that we spoke about. Ultra-processed foods, we need to get those out of our diets. We need to be focusing on a plant-centric diet. Whether you are 90% plant-based, 100% plant-based, the science shows that health comes from plants. So we need to really be focusing on those and reducing some of those foods in our diet that have been scientifically proven to be causing disease. But when it comes to weight loss, of course, we're all unique. We're all so different, and we have to respect and honor our unique constitution. But amongst all that, there is no reason to be afraid of carbohydrates. And what a relief because they're so yummy. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm lucky in some respects because I do maintain a very lean body mass and I can eat as many carbohydrates as I like. And some of you listening will have a very similar constitution to me, while other people listening may not have that constitution. But the important thing to know is that carbohydrates are incredibly important for your health, for your longevity. So just tweak things, find your own unique way to balance your weight, to find that ideal ratio and just have fun with it. Don't take it too seriously. And definitely check out Simon's book because there's so much great information. And what I love about reading books like Simon's is that if you do go down a plant-centric or a fully plant-based diet, it gives you that confidence because we've all grown up in a world that's told us that vegan or plant-based is deficient, right? We've all been told that. And unfortunately, that is something which is still being proliferated today as a belief system. But if you look at the science, it's just not there. So I really love reading these books. I'm currently reading another book as well uh, around athletic performance and plant-based diets. And it just gives me the confidence in my own personal life to just continue exploring this world of plant-based eating. If you loved today's episode, please make sure you are subscribed to Melissa's show. She pours so much love into this show for you guys. She absolutely loves doing it. We've got amazing guests coming up, some awesome episodes. So please make sure you go in there and subscribe. And she'd be incredibly grateful, and so would I, if you could leave a review in your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and let us know what you love, because we want feedback. We want to know what you love about this show. So that Melissa can continue to improve and get better and tweak and tweak to deliver you the content that you want. And don't forget to come and follow myself on Instagram at IamNickBroadhurst Broadhurst. And of course, follow Melissa at Melissa Messini because we post some really fun stuff on our social media. And don't forget today to look up. See the beauty around you. See the beauty within you. Be kind to yourself. Be gentle to yourself. Be love. Be loved to yourself. Be loved to others. And as always, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps.